Why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles? Acts chapter 17 is the passage that Sharon just read to us. And that's where we're going to pick up our text. Now, let me set the framework for what, what we're going to be digging into. And you've already heard the passage read. And by the way, why do we do that? You know, why do we read a passage and then walk right back through it through the teaching? Uh, there, there's something about hearing it in different ways. When, when you're studying it, it activates certain things in your mind and your brain and, and the spirit's on the move in that way too. But also just listening to it, hearing it read, hearing it spoken. In fact, the original audience would have heard these texts spoken to them. Most of them were illiterate. They wouldn't have had the opportunity to read it. They wouldn't have owned a personal copy of the scripture that was far too expensive, but they would have heard it read. And so we want to do that week in, week out, and and engage a couple different ways as we learn and grow together. Now, here's where we've been in this study of the book of Acts. You know, going back to the very beginning, Jesus commissioned the church. He spoke and created this entity that we now know of as the church. And in Acts 1.8, he said, you will be my witnesses, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power for this job. And you're going to start in Jerusalem, then you'll spread out to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and you'll end up to the remotest parts of the earth. And now here we are, Acts chapter 17 is one of those remotest parts of the earth, at least compared to Jerusalem. This is Athens. You know, this is the Athens that we always think about, you know, with um, the Greek gods and goddesses and the poetry and the literature and the universities. This is where Paul is in this passage. And of course, it's been quite a journey for the gospel to spread from Jerusalem to Athens. And it's going to keep going. Eventually, by the time Acts is finished, it's going to end up in Rome, which would have been the the power center and the political capital of the world. Now, as we've studied this book, we've not been able to cover every single paragraph as we typically would. And the reason is it would take us about three years as we broke down the text. And we said, yeah, I don't know that we want to be in Acts right now for three years, but here's what we're doing. And we've been strategic about the passages that we've chosen. We've grabbed on to the places that we think are most relevant for where we are as a church right now. And I think this passage, as much, maybe even more than any other, is relevant to us. Uh, we have a lot in common with Greek culture, and, and not just the Parthenon in, uh, in Nashville, right? When I read this passage, or hear it read as we just did, I think about us. I think about our culture. I think about our thoughts. I think about the ways that our hearts are kind of moved toward. And I want to unpack that for us because I think God actually wants to do something in our lives and in our, te- in our hearts through this text. I actually believe that the Spirit is going to be on the move even uh, this morning as we study and as we learn and as we grow together through this. So we're going to jump in in verse 16. I'm going to talk quickly. I probably talk kind of quickly anyway, but I I had a little extra caffeine this morning because it's a long passage and I want to do it as justice as best as I possibly can. So we're going to jump in in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Little background context. This is the second missionary journey of Paul. All right. He's going out. He takes Titus with him this time. Along the way, he meets this young man named Timothy. And so Titus and Timothy are the primary traveling companions of Paul in his second missionary journey. Now, he has left them behind at Berea. The reason he had to do that is Paul's life was in danger. So he escaped from Berea, and he he sails up to Athens. He gets dropped off in Athens, and he tells the folks on the ship, send word back to Titus and Timothy. I'll meet them in Athens. So Paul wasn't planning to stop in Athens. God led him there through this confluence of circumstances. But while he's there, he's not 
not just going to be a sightseer. He's going to engage and he's going to preach the good news even while he's just kind of there in, in a bit of a sojourn. Now, it's interesting what it says that his spirit was provoked from a city full of idols. Let's talk about Athens in AD 50. Okay, this would have been probably 49 or 50, somewhere in that time frame. It was not the, um, the, the climactic moment of Athenian culture. It was not the apex of, of the Greek empire. That would have been about you know, 400, 500 years earlier. Uh, think about it. It's very interesting. When Paul arrived in Athens, and I'm sure he would have walked and seen the, the Parthenon and all those things. Did you know the Parthenon would have already been 500 years old when Paul would have observed it? You know, think about that you know, for a little bit. Our, our, our nation is, is you know, maybe almost half of that age so far. And the Parthenon would have been 500 years old. But it would not have been in ruins. All right? It was still functioning. It was still a culture full of idols. In fact, Athens of its day was still the cultural center of the known world. No longer the power center or the political center. That was Rome, but it was still the cultural center. It had the best universities. It still had the best art. It still had the best poetry. So if you were into culture, if you were into art and all these kinds of things, you would find your way to Athens. But all those beautiful sites is not what made an impression on Paul. What made an impression on him was the idolatry. The idolatry. Here's how one commentator described what Paul would have seen in Athens circa AD 50. Here were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Just imagine that. Now, you know, if you've ever been there, and, and I haven't yet, but I studied lots of pictures and read a lot about this. Some of you have actually been to Athens. Uh, it's a little bit more majestic than our Parthenon here in uh, Nashville. It sits up on a large hill. And so you could see this gleaming spear point of the statue, according to this commentator, from 40 miles away. Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, and Diana. The whole Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus. And they were beautiful. They were not only made of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. You can just kind of picture this, how how beautiful this would have been. Elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. Uh, There was a Roman author at the time who was a contemporary of Paul. And he said this about what Paul would have seen when he went into Athens. He said, uh, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. All right, so let that image just kind of soak as, as you're thinking and trying to picture what Athens would have been like. Now, this word that says his spirit was provoked is fascinating. All right, you have to kind of dig deep to see what this means. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's used more than that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint or the LXX, and it always means God was provoked, God's spirit, the spirit of God was provoked, and it was always used in association with idol worship. So there is something about idol worship that provokes the spirit of God. That same spirit of God is in Paul now, right? And is being provoked as well. So Paul's having a godly response to idolatry. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. What what this word translated provoked means is that Paul was stirred. It wasn't just a mental or intellectual, you know, conundrum. There was something deep down in him. Something that, that was just saying, this is not right. Something was provoked and stirred. It's an emotional response. He was moved. Maybe you'd say it this way. He was stirred up. He was stirred up. Now, 
What was stirring Paul up? Wrong worship. Incorrect worship. Maybe ignorant, maybe knowfully, knowingfully for, for some of them, but they're worshiping the wrong thing. Why would that create this provocation in Paul? Why would it stir him up? I think there's two reasons. Number one, Paul had passion for God's glory. And it was God alone that created everything. Paul knew that. And so when he sees, you know, God of the sea and God of the wheat and God of, you know, the fertility, Paul is essentially saying they're attributing to these lifeless statues things that belong to the one true God alone. So imagine, um, you know, everybody in the room knows a songwriter probably, right? Like we're in a land of songwriters. And imagine you have a best friend songwriter. They write this killer song. Some other guy, you know, steals it. And, you know, attributes it to themselves and it blows up on the charts and makes all the money and, you know, has all the acclaim and the other guy gets the credit. You'd be provoked, you know. It's like, that's not right. That's not fair. Paul's got passion for God's glory. Secondly, he's got passion for the people of Athens. Paul knows there's no life in those statues. As we're going to talk about later, The things that you worship are the things that you think you're going to get something from, right? The things that you think have life for you is what you end up worshiping. They're worshiping the wrong thing. So they're they're not getting what they're looking for. Paul knows this. I think he's got passion for them as well. All right. I promise I'm going to move quickly through the other, you know, 30 some odd verses. Uh, Let's go on to verse 17. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. This was Paul's typical pattern. He would go into a new city. He'd start in the synagogue. Where Who are you going to find in the synagogue? Jewish people and Gentile God-fearers. Those are Gentiles that were either proselytes or, or they actually uh, you know, weren't converted to Judaism, but they recognized Yahweh as, as God. And so they were following the Jewish law. So he would always start there preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures, because that's what they would have been familiar with. But then he would move out into public space, the marketplace, the cultural center of the city, and he would preach the gospel to non-Jewish background people. You know, to Gentiles. And of course, you got to use a different foundation when you're preaching the gospel to the different audience. And you're going to hear this approach from Paul in this message, this sermon. He's not quoting from Old Testament scripture. Uh, It's a brilliant contextualization of the gospel message, and we're going to see that. Verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying... What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. You know, you just sort of feel like just the, the, the disdain on Paul. You know, it's like these intellectual elites. And like, you know, who is this little, little Paul guy? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21. I love this little parenthetical comment Luke makes. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Sounds to me like most of our social media today, right? You know, nothing new under the sun here. Okay, so Paul's out in the marketplace. He gets in a conversation with some philosophers. You know, you, you, I'd encourage you, you go study what the Epicureans believe, what the Stoics believe. You'll see a lot of cultural relevance to us. I don't want to get too bogged down there now. Uh, but he, but he, he gets invited to speak 
to the intellectual elites of Athens. And they had this council, and this council was called the Areopagus. Where did it get this name? Well, glad you asked. The name means Mars Hill. It actually means Hill of Ares, Areopagus. Ares is the Greek form. The Roman form is Mars. So this is the god of war. So they had a hill named after Ares, named after Mars. We know this as Mars Hill. We've got a photo of this that we're going to put on one of these screens somewhere, I think. Um, and, and what I want you to see in this photo, if we, if we have it up here, if not, I'll just describe it to you, is um, where this rock formation was called Mars Hill, called the Areopagus, was very close to where the Parthenon was. Okay, here you go. You can kind of see in the foreground, there's the Areopagus, this, you know, rock um, you know, hill. This would have been Mars Hill. And in the background, that's where the Parthenon is up there on, on top of that other hill. So Paul, if he was indeed speaking on this Mars Hill, get back to that in a second, would have been that close in proximity to um, you know, the, the tarp, top uh, where, all, where all the action was at the top of there. Now, the reason we're not sure is at some point in time, the council, which used to meet on the Areopagus, moved down into the marketplace. So Paul was either down low below this hill or he was up on the hill. Either way, you can kind of get an idea of where he was. And um, why don't we, can we leave that? I don't know if we can leave that picture on the screen while we go on to the scripture or not. If we can, let's do that. If we cannot, just put the scripture up now that we've seen it. Here's where I want to go with this. I, I want you to look out for two things as we jump into Paul's actual sermon as we jump into Paul's delivery here amidst this intellectual council, the Areopagus. I want you to look out for two things. Number one, I want you to look out for how he contextualizes his message to his audience. Okay, he does a brilliant job of this. And the second thing I want you to look out for is there's one theme that Paul develops throughout the message. And I'll go ahead and tell you what the theme is. The theme is life. Life, L-I-F-E. Now, I want you to kind of engage your brain as we walk through this. Why did Paul develop the theme of life? Why did he base his message on this theme? I want you to think about that, and we'll come back to that at the end. So think about the contextualization and notice the theme of life, and we'll break his argument down as we go a verse or two at a time. Uh, It's a pretty remarkable message. Let's go to verse 22. We'll go 22 and 23 together here. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, quote, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. What a great intro. Like Paul knows what he's doing. He's, he's connecting to his audience and he's like, he's stirring them, right? He's like, well, what are you talking about? You know something we don't know. Oh, silly Jewish man. You, you know, you see, uh, this unknown God is fascinating. There were so many gods and altars and statues all over Athens that they were probably afraid they would miss somebody they didn't know about. So someone said, you know, let's chisel this one to an unknown God. And that way, you know, if he ever shows up sometime, we'll say, hey, you know, we didn't leave you out. Don't be angry at us. Don't blow up our city. You know, here you are. We just didn't know your name. All right. That's probably what's going on here. And Paul's grabbing onto this and he's saying, let me tell you about this one that you sense is out there, but you don't know his name. In fact, as we're going to see, he is the God, singular you know, period. 
So let's, let's listen to Paul unpack uh, next, and you're going to hear this, this theme of life right away. Verse 24. The God, singular, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. You see how just completely comprehensive Paul's being here as he's talking about Yahweh. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. Okay, let's unpack this. Paul starts with creation, i.e. life. He's saying anything and everything that there is, all life around you, everything animated, everything inanimated was created by the one true God. Since this God is creator, everything that exists has its origin in him and is therefore dependent on him. And by the way, he doesn't need you to make him a house. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what about the temple? Okay, put, put on your Christian theology, right? The temple of God is where? It's in believers through the Spirit. And, and God never needed a house to begin with. Now, now that, that was a, um, for a period of time a precursor to what we now experience as Christians. But, but the period of the temple is, was, was never necessary for God's survival. Here's the context of this. Paul's saying this in view of that Parthenon where there's that big statue to Athena, the, the, the patron goddess of Athens. And did you know there were servants that would put out food for these statues, Athena and others, to eat? Of course, nothing would ever disappear, so then they would take that at the end of the day and they'd put new food and uh, they, they would you know, clean and, and, and bathe the gods, when they would get dusty or maybe get dirt on them. And, and what Paul is basically saying is, if you have to feed and clothe and build a house and care for your God, there's no life in that God. How powerful is that God? Now, look, look at verse 25, because he's really going to drill this point home. Nor is he served by human hands... As though he needed anything. See, you don't have to give him food. He doesn't need your food. In fact, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's the one that gives you food. Not the other way around. He's the one that serves you in a sense by providing all this creation, right? Not, not that God serves us, we serve God. But the point is, he's the giver of everything, you don't have to give him things like you're doing with all these other gods. All right, let's keep moving on. Uh, we're going to look at the next two verses, 26 and 27. Uh, now what Paul is going to do, having established that God created it all, he's going to give the reason for it. You know, he's going to give the purpose of life. Seriously, right here in these two verses. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, here's the reason, verse 27, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's what Paul is telling these Athenians, these philosophers, right? You want to know the purpose of life? God made you so that you would seek him and find him. God wants to know you. He wants to be found by you. 
The whole purpose of life is to be in relationship with this God who created you. And you didn't know his name, but I'm making him known to you. You see, this is what Paul is saying in this. Um, I love this phrase, if perhaps they might grope for him. Paul is realizing this is precisely what the Athenians have been doing. What are all those gods about? What's that pantheon about, right? All these gods, they're groping. In fact, you know, for an unknown god, you're out there somewhere. They're groping. Now, you only grope if you don't, can't see, if you're in the dark, right? Paul is saying, you've been in the dark and you've been groping, but this god is not far. He's near. I want you to open your eyes and see. You don't have to grope anymore. He is not far from each one of us, Paul says. This would have been remarkable for a Jewish scholar apart from Christ. They would never say that. A Jewish scholar apart from Christ would have said, you pagan Gentiles are far from God. Come near. Can, you know, change your ways. Climb the rope of religion like Eric talked about last week. Become a Jew. And then maybe, just maybe, he'll be close to you. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying he's not far from each of us. How could Paul say that? Because Jesus brought God close. John chapter 1. The word who created it all became flesh and dwelt among us. Like he put put up a tabernacle, put up a tent to live here with us. And oh, by the way, the spirit now in Paul... Right? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, which is in every believer, is literally like you know, 10 feet away from these men talking to him. He's not far from each of us. You see, Paul is making God known. Now, let's go on. Uh, next couple of verses. I want you now to pay attention to the contextualization Paul's going to use in this. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, Quote, for we are also his children. He, he's quoting from Greek poets here. They're well known. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. This is actually pretty profound. Paul is saying all your so-called gods were made by you, weren't they? They're artistic creations from your own imagination and your own hands. All right, that's not the real God. You know, we are made by him. We are, you know, Paul would say in a different place, we are his masterpieces, right? We are his artwork, not the other way around. And then going on in the next two verses, 30 to 31, Paul's going to give the application of this message, which in our vernacular fellowship, we'd say the so what, All right, here comes the so what. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, okay, he's he's introducing the topic of grace now, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What's the application of this, you know, remarkable, you know, short, and by the way, it probably would have been longer. We're just kind of getting a summary of of Paul's message here. What's the application of it? Repent. Repent. By the way, that's always the application of of any message. Now, some of you are like, repent. I don't like that word. 
The reason you don't is because we've, you know, layered on this idea of repentance, all this um, kind of negative religious baggage. So, you know, when we think about repentance, you know, some, some images that maybe come in your mind is, you know, you know well, just, just, you know, beat yourself into submission or just, you know, you evil person, make yourself right. You know, it, Eric's favorite phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you know all, all these different kinds of things. That's not what the word repent means. The word repent, and many of you know this, you've heard it before, but for some this will be new. It means to turn from one direction to a different direction. So it's like if, if you're trying to find, uh, I don't know, you're walking um, from downtown Franklin oh, and you're, you know, you're going to Pinkerton Park, you know, you're heading north, that's the wrong direction. You're going to repent. You're going to turn and you're going to go east, you see. Turn to find what you're looking for. Repent. This is what Paul is saying. This is what this repentance means. So think about this in the context of the theme of the message, which is life. What Paul is actually saying here is, turn from lifeless gods, hold no life for you, turn toward the true life-giving God. Turn from worshiping lifeless things, turn toward worshiping life-giving, the life-giver, the only one. You see, Paul is directing them to repent. It's a turn to change their worship. Then, and th- this is absolutely critical, and I know I'm just flying through the, all this, and, and I have to, but this is so rich. He, he talks about the resurrection. He says, here's proof that this one God I've been telling you about has all the life in the whole world. You see, he was raised from the dead. If life is what you're after, how about finding it from the God who defeated death, right? What's the enemy of life? It's death. He's saying, saying, Jesus Christ was so full of life that it overwhelmed death. He overwhelmed death, you see. And so he builds this sermon masterfully. He starts with the creation of life and he ends on the other side with new life, resurrection life, promise of eternal life, you see. You see how he's building this. And, and by the way, any Christian argument that we will ever make, you know, as we're, as we're explaining our faith, you know, apologetics and other things like this, is always, always going to hinge on resurrection. And Paul recognized this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he actually says, if there's no resurrection, go have fun. You know, like, you know, not that, not that worship isn't fun but Paul just says go go just empty yourself on wine and partying and 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 relationships just go do all that because there's no life in anything else so you might as well just squeeze what you can out of your meager existence but if resurrection is real then there's a life that awaits and that we can even experience in part now which makes all that other stuff look like lifeless idols in comparison. And this is essentially Paul's argument. He's saying, I know you're seeking after life. I know you're looking for something that's alive. You keep trying to feed these statues. 
You keep sacrificing to stuff that has no life in it. Why are you doing that? You think there's life there. You think it has something to give you. You're sacrificing yourself for this. Why? Because you think it's going to feed you back. It won't because it can't. But over here, there's life to be had. So much life that death couldn't even hold him in the grave because he's the author of life. This is Paul's sermon to these men. Now, let's listen to their response. And, and honestly, like, I think Paul nailed it. But the response is not what, what I would have hoped for if I was the preacher. And we'll talk about this. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Anytime the gospel is preached, anytime the gospel is preached, there will be some who will reject it. And, and in this case, as is often the case, they will sneer at this idea of life, at this idea of resurrection. Miracles. That's just silly religious talk. Right? There will be others, always, that will say, you know, maybe I'll hear more about this sometime. And it might be years later that God will again speak to them and work in them and move in them. Others will say, yes, yes. And what's happening behind the scenes spiritually is the Spirit is opening their ears, giving them understanding to connect the dots and they're able to place their faith in Christ. And there were at least some, there were at least a few, not very many. We don't hear about a church being started in Athens, as would have typically been the case. Now, Paul wasn't there very long. It was just a very brief sojourn. But by and by, most commentators have said, it doesn't seem like there was a real great response to the gospel. Is that on Paul? It's not on us to determine who puts their faith in Christ. We are to be faithful witnesses. That's what Jesus commanded his church. You will receive power from the Spirit. You're going to use that power to be witnesses. Leave the rest to me. Now, through the course of history, Christianity is going to win the day in Athens. All right? Now, we're still praying for Athens for a lot of reasons, right? There's Christianity in Athens, but there may not be a lot of life in it again. So we're still praying for Athens. But, but God has a way of, through the course of time, allowing the message of the gospel to seep into the cracks in society of a culture. This one was resistant at this point in time. Now, here's what I want to do for the rest of the message. I want to give you an illustration, and then I want to give you some application, all right? And I I don't have a lot of time to do that. But let me give you an illustration of Paul's message to the Athenians. All right, some of you are wondering if I was ever going to get to this. This is not communion, although we've got all these, you know, beautiful goblets and, you know, all kinds of of things. I've actually been nervous to have this up here next to me because I get excited when I'm preaching and I don't want to tip this one over, okay? This is real glass and crystal and all these kinds of things. This represents, you know, my illustration here, this represents all those so-called gods that these Athenians were worshiping, right? So, you know, you know, here's the god of the sea, and, you know, here's the god of the wheat, and, you know, you've got beautiful, the real tall one, let's just say, this is, this is Athena, right? This is the patron goddess of Athens. And what Paul's essentially saying is, I've seen all the beauty of your so-called gods, and they sure do look good. They, they sparkle, they glimmer, they gleam, but I'm noticing not one of them has a drop of water in them 
they're, they're actually empty. And for life, you've got to have water. Now, there's a God that I want to introduce you to that has all the life, all the water you'll ever need, and he's right here. Now, imagine this little vase filled to the brim, in fact, even overflowing, an inexhaustible source of life. This is what Paul is essentially saying is, here's water, you know, quote, quote our baptism service. Look, water, you know, here it is. Water, water. Let me set this right here on this table. Paul's saying, I know where you can find life. Because this is what you're looking for. Now, I'm really going on the edge here. There we go. Whew. All right. Life is here. It's not in all these empty things. Now, what's the application for us? Same thing. You've got your collection. I've got my collection. We don't usually call them idols. But in a sense, that's what they are. They are other things that we worship apart from the one true God apart from the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I don't lay down any other altar. I'm only worshiping Jesus. Let me define an idol for you. Let me, let me contextualize idol worship for us here in uh, 2018. An idol is anything you go to that you believe has fullness of life for you, apart from the one true source of life. An idol could be a talent, a gift, a career, a person, a family. There's all kinds of things that we would go to and say, this is where life is for me. I'm going to squeeze this thing. My job, my career, my identity, my security, my my portfolio, my, my power, my identity of who I see myself to be. I think that's where life is for me. I'm going to sacrifice to that and I'm going to squeeze all the life that I can out of this. The problem with all those things is they're empty. So, so here's what it is. When you're so-called laying your life down at the altar of a job or a career or, 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 or even your children, give me life. Give me life. There's nothing there. There's no water in this, you see. Now, we worship them in a sense because we think they have life for us and they don't. By the way, anything that you make an, an idol out of, that you, you find your sense of, of, of life and satisfaction and fulfillment uh, uh, apart from Jesus Christ, you will eventually serve that thing. Because you have to feed it. You've got to make sacrifices. So if you put your identity and your job or your career or your gifts or your talent or your marriage, your spouse, your children, whatever it is, someone's going to pay a price. Someone's going to pay a price for that. If, if your idol is, is um, the good life, you know, and here we are in Williamson County, that's why we're all here. You know, we, we want success, but we also want a good family. You know, we want beauty, and we want parks and good education, and we want our kids to be raised right. That's, nothing's wrong with any of that stuff, but sometimes this pursuit of the good life can turn into an idol because we think it has true life, and there's no true life there. So what do we do? We change our worship. Worship is the key to all of this. Did you know every time you sin, you're worshiping something other than God? That's the first commandment of the Ten Commands. You know, the Ten Commandments, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And every time you're sinning, what you're actually doing is you're saying, I think this path over here has a little bit of life for me that I'm not sure God is going to give me. So I'm just going to dabble. I'm just going to dabble, you see. And whatever that sin area is. Here's what Christ would call us to. There is one source of life. Now, I want to give you a really personal illustration of this. 
to drive it home, and then I'm, I'm going to pray, and, and we're going to worship this morning because, because we need to worship in order to fuel our affection for the one true God. Uh, one of my particular idols, in fact, let me, grab, let, me grab, let me grab one of these to represent this. Okay, we, we all have our collection, okay? For me, one of my core ones that I try to squeeze life out of is human approval. You know, all my life, I've just wanted people just to, to like me. You know, I didn't care if I had a lot of money. That wasn't my thing. But, but it's important that people think I'm a, a, a good guy, that they respect me, that they like me. And so he, here's how this can go awry from the pulpit. If I preach for you, instead of preaching for Christ, what I'm essentially doing is I'm trying to find life from your approval of me, my performance that's a sin. It's ugly. So what does it look like for me to repent? I did, I, I repented of that this week as I was preparing for this message. Here's what it looks like for me to repent. Number one, I have to name the idol. I have to say, God, I think I'm trying to get a sense of identity, not in your approval of me, not in the word of God flowing through me, but in, but in wanting these people to think I'm a good teacher. And so, Father, I, I, I've been trying to find life from this other thing. Naming that allows me to set it down. If I hadn't named it, I don't know, it's there. I can't set it down. I name it, I set it down, and I say, help me to drink from the true source of life, which is the resurrected Christ, my identity in him. Help me to see myself just as a vessel of the word of God, not a performer. Right, not, a, not a preacher for you. I'm not going to tickle your ears. I'm going to preach God's word. Some of you are going to think, good teaching. Some of you are going to think, meh. I'll sleep well at night either way because my identity is here. You see, you see how I shifted my worship? Now, this isn't always easy for me. Here's my point. You have your collection as well. You got to name them and you got to turn your worship. We think worshiping is just singing. It's not but it certainly includes singing. So let's practice, all right? I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna practice worshiping the one true God, the resurrected Jesus Christ, and allow him to fuel worship toward him rather than our own collection of idols, all right? Let's pray. Bow our heads together. Our Father, we do recognize you as the giver of life. You're the creator of all things, as Paul said. There's nothing that we have ever seen or read about, or imagined even, that does not have its origin in you, the life giver. Secondly, we recognize that we are sinners. And for all of us in the room, some of our sin has to do with worshiping the wrong things. We try to squeeze life out of things that don't have life for us. And we do that because we're so thirsty. And we feel so needy, and yet, God, you've given us the source and help us as a body to continue to learn more and more what it looks like for us to drink from the source and not try to find life and these other things. And so, Father, I pray even now as we're about to worship you through song, would you guide us to the true source of life? Would you allow our hearts to connect with our minds for a minute? Our minds tell us you're the one true God. Our hearts sometimes chase after all these other things. Would you align the two together? Would we overflow, even in this moment, with worship, with praise, with adoration, with a sense of you and you alone hold life for me. And this is where I'm going to seek it. This is where I'm going to grope for it. 
And this is where I'll find it in the resurrected Jesus, the life giver. It is in his name alone, the only name, the only resurrected one that we could possibly ask for life. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand to our feet together and we'll sing.